Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to the second in our new series, This Week in Doom. Joining me to bring a little doom to the proceedings, uh, as well as so much insight, is the green chicken himself, Duberg. Hi, mate. Grant, how are you? So good to see you again. And uh, I understand that you're enjoying the nice weather in Australia. And uh, I must say, uh, given where we are located here in, in the flyover country in the US, I, I must express I'm a little bit jealous. Yeah, if you're in, in in the southern hemisphere in February, you get breaking rights over the northern hemisphere. It's just that simple. There's 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 no two ways about it. So yeah, I've been down in Sydney, which is nowhere near the police state. One has been led to believe by social media from uh, the other side of the world. Um, and I've been spending some time with my daughter, which has been just fantastic. But there is so much going on right now, Dumi. And um, you know, we have our first guest joining us today to hopefully flesh out people's understanding of a, a very complex space that you have actually been writing about a lot recently. So why don't you talk about our guest and, and, and who we're going to be talking to at a moment? Yeah, so our, uh, our guest is, is one that I very much look forward to having on, and uh, his name is Rory Johnston. He's a fantastic oil and gas analyst, uh, a former economist, and uh, really does a phenomenal job of analyzing, uh, you know, his specialty is is the Canadian oil and gas markets, but obviously he's very well aware of the sort of global phenomenon uh, of what's going on in the energy space. And I must say, you know, given that uh, I'm sitting here in the dead of winter, you know, what's going on in natural gas and, and oil and energy in particular is of extreme importance to me, given the temperatures uh, that we're currently experiencing. But really a great guy. And as the listeners will, will hear uh, through the bulk of the interview, uh, really a phenomenal knowledge base and a really underfollowed account on Twitter. And, and hopefully your listeners will get a great exposure to a new resource uh, as they as they consider how they go about uh, thinking about energy, oil and gas, and the markets in general. Well, listen, before we bring Rory on, let me just ask you, because you've written an awful lot about energy in recent weeks. And, um, you know, I know that some of those pieces have been controversial. Some of them have been well-received. Some of them have had a lot of pushback on. Just give us a little kind of general background into your foray into the energy markets and the response to that. Yeah, I think um, we have been sort of ringing the warning bell, as you, as you may say, about the fact that we're seeing an awful lot of what we would call decapitalization of the incremental production capacity, especially among U.S. shale producers. We have been arguing quite forcefully that the path function matters and that the um, path from today to a less carbon intense economy needs to be well thought out and, and we risk running substantial you know, distress to the economy and to humanity in general if we get this wrong. And in many instances, we're getting it wrong. You know, the the last piece that we put out about this was called um, Shooting Oil in a Barrel, where we talked about how, you know, these environmental organizations are opposing any and all expansion, at least in the sort of the Western world of, of natural gas and oil production capacity. And, and it's really having substantial impact. And I think, you know, um, once we get through this crisis of hysteria around whether or not um, Russia will invade Ukraine, um, I think you're going to see that the price of oil is not really trading on the headlines, but it's actually trading on the fundamentals. And the fact that we're sitting here today at, at 90 plus dollars a barrel is 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 a real potential, you know, challenge to the economy going forward. Right, right. I, you know, the, the issue here is, of course, is the price of oil could, could only get so high before it, it has a second order and a negative effect in the economy, which ultimately undercuts the price of oil. But this entire sort of reluctance to fund the necessary capital and maintenance to maintain our current production, let alone grow it, uh, is is what I think is is the challenge of the day. Yeah, an oil price trading on fundamentals and not headlines. Can can you can you conceive of such a world? Indeed, it's uh, you know it, as they say, uh, we have a you know good friend who's a professional trader, and and he likes to say that the uh, headlines are are always retroactively written and prices law. Yeah, I, I think there's an awful lot of truth to that. Well, what do you say, Demi? Should we uh, should we bring Rory on and, and uh, have a little chat about the oil patch? Absolutely, let's do it. 
Rory, welcome to the podcast. You are the first guest we've had join us on This Week in Doom. We're delighted to have you. Thank you for having me. It's a, it, it's a big honor to, uh, to be the first guest. Well, we'll just see about that. That's up to, that's up to how the, the chicken <laughs> and I take this thing forward. But we're, we're, as I say, we're delighted to have you. But for a lot of people out there, and this is one of the big things that we're going to try and do with this podcast, is introduce people that, that frankly have a, a smaller audience than they perhaps deserve. And so um, we thought this would be a great chance to, to showcase your work, to have a little discussion with you, talk about what makes you tick. And, and I guess the first part of that for the people who are going to be new to your work is to, is to give them your background, let them know um, how you ended up where you are and doing what you're doing. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's great. So uh, my name is Rory Johnston. My former life, I spent the, the bulk of my career to date at uh, Scotiabank, where I was a commodity economist. Before that, I did a little bit of the international economic side. Uh, but that involved coming up with price forecasts, uh, communicating the bank's views on everything from, I like to say, crude, copper and canola. Uh, so everything right through the, the commodity space. Um, and I was a bit different than the kind of a commodity strategist or, you know, an investment banker or, or what have you, um, where, you know, my, I, my focus wasn't entirely institutional. It was some of that, uh, but it was also media. It was internal audiences. It was educational. Uh, so my goal uh, in a lot of what I do is to try and decompose and break down really complicated but really important sectors, you know, most most notably the oil industry, into things that people can understand and, and find tangible. Uh, so after about six going on seven years at Scotia, I, I left um, at the beginning of 2020. I joined a small family office and was doing a little bit of that when the pandemic uh, struck. That obviously threw everything and all of my plans into topsy-turvy. Uh, we had our first son around uh, the beginning of 2020. And then uh, I've actually, we just had our second son uh, this past Boxing Day. So we, we thought we were having, uh, we joked about having pandemic kind of bookend babies. And Omicron kind of seems right. to have ruined, ruined that, uh, that nicety. Um, well, that's, a, that's a, if I may interrupt, that's a terrible name for a child. Did you really call your... <laughs> yeah. thankfully, thankfully, no. <laughs> and uh, Rory, let, let me interrupt too and to uh, inform our, our listeners who don't happen to live in Canada. And Rory, welcome to the show. Great to have you. That Boxing Day is actually the day after Christmas. Oh, I always forget that that's not a like commonly. No, I'm well a Brit, so I just thing. I just let it go. You're right. Do oh, okay, that's fair. Yeah, <laughs> uh, December 26th. Um, so yeah, and basically, so uh, over the course of the pandemic, commodity markets obviously went completely berserk. Uh, you know, every you know, it started with lumber. You know, we saw copper reach all time highs. Obviously, crude oil has been on a you know historic collapse and then historic rally. And my phone kept ringing off the hook from a lot of my previous media contacts, and I didn't want to sound like a moron, so I kept researching uh, commodities, even though that wasn't kind of what I was doing day to day at that stage. And after a long time of that, after a couple months of that, basically, I was like, why am I not writing any of this down? I used to really enjoy writing. Uh, so then I, then I started uh, the Commodity Context Substack. Uh, so that's commodicontext.substack.com. Uh, and the goal there is to provide kind of bank economics-esque research to a much broader audience and trying to plug what I see as a bit of a market gap of kind of serious... Uh, kind of somber but fun-ish research in like important areas like the oil market, uh, but for people that don't have tens of thousands of dollars for a research budget. So that's what I'm trying to do now, and that's where increasingly more and more of my time's going. Now, congratulations on the Substack, Rory. And um, as you know, I'm a big fan of your work, and we've cited some of your research in some of our own pieces. I wonder if maybe we should begin by giving us your overall thoughts on something that we've written about and I know that you've written about and, and many of our listeners would be very interested in, which is sort of the overall state of the oil market today. As we sit here, oil is trading a little above $92 uh, US for WTI off the back of uh, what appears to be some de-escalation in Ukraine. Uh, what are your thoughts on the overall market? Um, we're obviously uh, over on the Doomberg team, pretty bullish on the, the medium-term outlook. Uh, what do you see going on and what's on the top of your radar? Yeah, so I think, um, as, as you correctly pointed out, the, the price right now, I mean, it's been up and down like a yo-yo every time there's been a de-escalation or re-escalation headline. So we're definitely very much in that cycle of geopolitical premium kind of coming and going. But obviously, that's, that's a relatively recent development for the oil market, whereas the majority of the past year and a half has been pretty much a, you know, a singular, you know, straight line, you know, up and to the right for crude. 
And I think what's happening there is, is the oil markets experience, I mean, all commodity markets, but the oil market, because it's biggest, uh, experienced disruptions and kind of shocks like it's never experienced in history. 2020 saw the largest ever supply surpluses that, you know, absolutely crushed prompt prices, you know, swelled inventories, pushed prices to their first, you know, uh, prompt or front month futures to their first negative settlement in history. So obviously, you know, it, it was just extreme. I think that's how I would describe it. And the oil market had been kind of more, it would be, it kind of been trending towards a bit of a slow moving train wreck for the better part, you know, post 2014 forward, it kind of lurched and, and lumbered and tried to find its way, but it kind of kept falling back. And the crux of why was that we found ourselves in this, you know, U.S. shale vortex, really, where, you know, you know, someone else other than me coined the term, you know, the shale band. But the idea was basically that anytime crude dropped below $40 WTI, you know, shale would turn off and the market would balance. And then anytime it jumped above $60, it would, you know, shale would come on voraciously and crash the market. Uh, naturally, it never worked as nicely as that because you had periods where the prices ran really high, really fast. 2018 is a great example on the back of, you know, the the Trump administration's Iran sanctions head fake. You saw, you know, prices reach almost as high as they reach now for for Brent uh, in the end of the 80s. And and that basically prompted a massive wave of, of, of U.S. production growth in, in the range of one and a half to two million barrels a day, which is just, you know, just put that in perspective for, for listeners, you know, on a good kind of normal year for oil demand growth, you're growing at one and a half million barrels a day globally. So when U.S. shale grows at two million barrels all by itself, that means that the rest of the market needs to cut back in order for balance. And of course, that doesn't happen. Happen, prices just absolutely crater. And that's what we saw at the end of 2018. And we saw that to you know, an extreme extent during COVID as you know, negative prices and, and, and you know, doom and gloom across the board really forced a lot of producers to ratchet back their production. And in the U.S. shale patch, what we've seen is even, even with a bit of growth off the bottom of 2020 into 2021, we're still about one and a half million barrels a day below the all-time high crude production that was reached before COVID hit, which is about 13 million. Uh, and now we're at just give or take 11 and a half. Going forward, I think, you know, there's a bunch of things, obviously, that, you know, the oil market is extraordinarily expansive and complex. And we can talk about, you know, any any corner of it, I think we will. But I think the single most important forecast variable is the assumed price sensitivity of U.S. shale going forward, because we have basically two worlds we can live in. And I haven't decided which one we're going to be in yet, because I don't think the market's decided which which uh, which world we're going to be in. Uh, one world is a world of low shale growth, which is kind of in the range of, you know, even with high prices, maybe 300 to 500,000 barrels a day of growth. Uh, whereas in a high shale growth, you see back to that kind of 1 million plus growth capacity. In that high growth environment, you know, I think I think the one thing that COVID shock did across the board was it more or less erased the ultimate downside of a U.S. shale patch that's going to take on debt to bury itself. I think that is mostly behind us now. Uh, but, you know, you could still have a scenario where you kind of, you know, U.S. shale can grow at one, one and a half million barrels a day if prices are high enough. But I just think that shale ban probably has shifted maybe from 40 to 60 up towards, you know, 60 to 80. And I think that is, you know, and I think in all likelihood, the most likely scenario going forward, if we were looking at kind of modal possibilities. But there's another scenario, I think this low shale growth environment, you know, that 300 to 500,000 barrel a day range growth, where prices can reach up above $100 a barrel, and U.S. shale is just not going to grow that fast. And that puts a lot of pressure on the rest of the global supply chain, uh, the rest of global crude producers, to fill that gap. And that's you know millions and millions and millions of barrels a day over a five-year period. And there's not that many areas that that kind of production can come from anymore. You know, the, the, you know it's just not... Oil really isn't a growth business like it used to be. So you're looking at, you know, I, I'm in Canada, so there's some growth potential in the Canadian oil sands. Uh, there's a new prospect in, in Guyana that's, I think, going to add some Brazilian pre-salts, which is kind of ultra-deep sea uh, Brazilian uh, production exploration. I think that has some potential, but that's disappointed chronically before. And then beyond that, it's basically shale and OPEC. Uh, OPEC mostly tapped out at this stage already. Uh, we have, I think we're going to get a bit more production growth through 2022. 
Uh, but really, you know, any of the post-deal capacity, it's in Saudi and it's in the UAE. That's it. And even between them, you know, they're going to struggle to add, you know, combined a million barrels a day kind of, you know, growth every year. That's just not the way that their production works. So we come back to the scenario of, you know, if we don't have a lot of U.S. shale production growth to keep up with those prices, I think we're in a scenario where you're, you know, you're above $100 a barrel on a pretty state, on a pretty steady state going forward. And we have more of a sustainable uh, experience with, you know, above $100 crude, like we kind of felt was the normal between kind of 2011 and 2014. Rory, let, let me let me ask you, um, with all that being said, and I, I want to come back to where you've kind of put the pin in that for now, but I, I just want to go back a little bit. You said a couple of things in there, talking about the complexity of the oil market. And I, and I think this is a really important thing to do because if we are indeed at the beginning of a potential commodities boom, which you know the inflationary backdrop would suggest and history would kind of confirm is, is, is a very possible path forward. You know, the oil price to me is perhaps the most complex thing in the world that is put down to a number that everybody just intuitively thinks they understand, you know. People talk about the oil price with abandon and, you know, oil price go up is good for producers, bad for the economy. Oil price goes down, is, it sends a signal that the economy's faltering or whatever it may be. But perhaps for the people listening, we could kind of unpack what the oil price actually is because, it, as I say, there's so much wrapped up into that. And I think to start, it would be really helpful. We talk about the, the shale patch. We talk about OPEC. People understand OPEC+. Plus. If we could just kind of unpack the main players in the oil space and, and kind of historically as their importance has kind of waxed and waned over the years so we can get a sense of really where we should be looking at. You know, I suspect it is the US shale, but there's also going to be nuances of, of where OPEC and OPEC Plus currently stand now, particularly with in the case of Russia. So perhaps you could give us like an overall, a rounded, holistic view of, of what the oil price actually is. Yeah, uh, I think it's a great question. I think, um, so for me, and I think for a lot of commodities, but oil, I think is it's the biggest, it's the, it's the most valuable. So there's the most data, which is kind of, I'm a data guy, so I kind of love to look through the data. And the oil prices you see quoted is a specific benchmark. It represents, you know, a physical type of barrel with a certain kind of band of chemistry available for a certain price at a certain time in a certain location. And all three of those pieces is really important, right? You know, the, the location is important because if you don't have pipeline capacity, I know, again, I'm, I'm speaking from Canada here. So when we had massive pipeline bottlenecks in Western Canada, you had the price differential between oil in Western Canada and oil, you know, in the U.S. blow, blow out to more than, you know, $40, $50 a barrel because at that stage you just couldn't get it to where it needed to go. So the, so the geography is very, very important. Um, the chemistry is also very, very important. The, you know, all oil is is graded on a range of, you know, there's heavy and light, uh, lighter being kind of easier, lighter hydrocarbons like gasoline and propane, et cetera. Whereas heavier, you get more into the bitumens and the kind of, you know, residual waxes and some of those distillates. Um, so the chemistry is very important too, and those all yield different products when they're refined. And I think the final thing is that time element. And this is when we when you talk about things like uh, the oil futures curve. The reason that's important, and I think this is something that I hark on, you know, constantly on Twitter is, you know, people often, because a lot of assets have forward curves and, and the forecast, if you will, or the, the forward curve is treated as a, a market forecast for that kind of asset. And the thing that you have to remember with oil is because it's physical, because it's intertemporal like that, is that, you know, when the oil price forward curve is pointing down, that means we're actually really, really bullish because it means that there's a premium on, on barrels available today. Whereas if it was pointing up, you would say, oh, the, you know, the market forecast is that the price of oil is going to go up. No, the reason it's pointing up is because you're discounting barrels today in order to store them, in order to kind of pay for that economics of storage. So all three of those pieces is, you know, are really, really important. In terms of the kind of trajectory of the oil industry, uh, we've gone through a period where, you know, even just, I'm just gonna keep this like really kind of the last 20 years, um, because we had this period coming into the 2020s, or sorry, the, or, or sorry, the 2000s, that, you know, 
things were seemed pretty fine. And then all of a sudden you had this China, you know, EM global boom. This was the first major kind of super cycle with which I think most of us are familiar hearing about. You know, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't personally alive in the in the 70s kind of one. But the um, that 2000s one is that, you know, that China driven boom where prices went really, really high for everything. Um, and that was very much demand driven. Right. Then we had the, you know, the, the recession, the financial crisis, um, that kind of all reset. But oil came out of that looking pretty good. And part of that was because all of the traditional ways of extracting oil were running out. We were, you know, we had more and more, you had to, you had to spend more and more money and the, and the projects needed to be more and more complex in order to get any supply that was reasonably reliable. So this was your kind of your, your super majors like Exxon and Chevron. They were ultra deep sea. They were Arctic. They were massive tens of billions of dollars for a Canadian oil sands mine where all of the all of the investment or most of it is, is, is kind of upfront capex. So you had these really, really long cycle projects that take a decade to complete and then produce for 50 years. Then you had the oil price crash of 2014, which which came on because shale just kept growing and growing and growing and growing. And this had, this has been a, this has been a trend that had been building for decades, but really only started to really hit its stride after the financial crisis in the kind of 2010s. Coming into 2012, 2013, this this crew just kept coming and coming and coming, and people thought it was eventually going to turn off, and it just never did. It crushed the market. I, I'm sure listeners remember, but you know, you had oil prices that fell from what felt like a normal price of $100 a barrel in 2014 down to, I think, the low for WTI in 2016 was 26 bucks. So that's a huge fall. And, and I think the biggest thing wasn't just the the volatility of it, but the way it reset expectations around what the long-term price of oil was. It went from being a hundred, you know, eighty to one hundred and ten dollars a barrel, or whatever your previous range was, to more like you know forty, fifty bucks. And then all of a sudden, all of those previously attractive, you know, mega projects and super long plays and everything else, all of a sudden weren't very attractive anymore. And basically, the the main name in town was U.S. Shale, and that's how the market more or less balanced itself off and on from 2014 to the pandemic. So Rory, let's build on that last comment, which is U.S. Shale. And, you know, in a wonderful piece that you wrote on your fantastic Substack on, on November 30th called uh, the U.S. Shale Patches Lackluster Recovery is a Problem for the Post-COVID Oil Market. I, I learned a lot by reading that piece and, and we wrote about it uh, in our own work. Talk to us a little bit about some of the key observations in that piece, including an observation that we've drilled on both on Twitter uh, and on Substack, which is this drill but uncompleted wells phenomenon and the lack of investment in new drilling that we think might be potentially um, bearish for supply, bullish for price. And then as a second sort of part to that question, uh, I wonder whether the the natural gas issue and the inability to um, complete pipeline projects in the U.S. is perhaps a further force that stunts the growth of the oil patch because you you don't have a place to put the natural gas if you can't get it out of, of certain regions and into, let's say, the uh, you know LNG export terminal. So uh, talk to us a little bit about um, that piece and, and your observations and whether you still hold those uh, beliefs today a couple of months later. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Doomberg. And, and I it, personally, you know, thank you so much for the shout out on that piece that I wrote uh, in your Substack, which is also fantastic. And everyone should subscribe. And I'm sure everyone listening already is. But basically, so shale is interesting because it's different than virtually all the rest of the oil production. When people think about oil production, they think about, you know, kind of the Beverly Hillbillies model. You drill a big pipe down and then, you know, the, you stick the straw on the ground and then the pressure that's built up over millions of years sprays it all out in the air. And, and that's your conventional production. But that, you know, the geology is really interesting because all you know, all of that type of conventional oil started like the oil that we're now exploiting in areas like the Permian and in what we'd call source rock. So that would typically seep out of those sedimentary layers where it was formed and kind of travel up until it it found a, a you know a cap rock or some kind of geological formation that trapped it there, and then that pressure built and built and built, and that's kind of how we have those gushers now. But going back to the source rock like we are with shale is really interesting because, you know, it, it, you know, theoretically, it could have taken millions of more years for this oil to become what we would consider conventional oil now. So what you do is you drill down and, and the other, you know, fracking is the big part of this. And then the other part is horizontal drilling. And you kind of drill down and you drill sideways through these, these oil reserves or these oil formations. 
and then you fracture them or you complete them and you and you basically pump a bunch of propant you know fluid and propant like sand into these things you know sh you know shatters the formations and lets all of the hydrocarbons that are trapped there you know you know seep out into the well and then you pump up, pump it up to the surface what you're talking about uh, you know re referencing these drilled but uncompleted wells phenomenon is one of the interesting things about shale production is that you're drilling and completing a well, which is, you know, the actual, the completion is, you know, actually finishing it, the fracking, the getting the oil out. But the drilling is a, is a separate section. So they can happen in two different stages. And often they do. And what we've seen is that in the previous periods where you had a lot of this drilling going on, um, the drilling actually outpaced the capacity to complete these wells. So you built up this big, massive mountain of these drilled but uncompleted wells or ducts as they're, uh, as they're you know, known in the industry. Very, very common to chickens, but this is, you know, a, a slightly different, different type of poultry. Um, and the idea with that, and historically we've looked at those ducks as kind of a bearish headwind because, you know, even because back then it was, oh, okay, well, even if U.S. shale drilling goes down, all they can, you know, the shale producers can fall back on those ducks and then you can kind of finish and keep production pretty buoyant. So you don't have to worry about, you know, production fall off in the same way. But what we saw during COVID was that all of these producers basically cut all of their investment back to the bone, uh, all of their expenditure, and they had this great asset, which is all these wells that were already drilled. Uh, so now they're going and they've dramatically kind of depleted that previous uh, kind of mountain back to basically to 2014 levels or pretty close to as low as they've been on the record, uh, at least the record provided by the EIA. And what that's done is it's it's artificially subsidized the current production base coming out of the United States because you haven't needed to drill as many wells, you haven't needed all of the associated services with the you know for that entire supply chain that you will now need going forward because now that this you know, massive inventory of ducks has been depleted. Now you're going to need to drill, like you were saying, Doomberg, you know, a lot more wells. So, you know, drill, drill, drill. And there's a bunch of things that are kind of holding that up. And I think this is the biggest question right now. And I, you know, we were saying this earlier in the podcast was that U.S. oil production is the big variable. And there's a lot of debate right now. And I don't think anyone really knows where it's going to go. The reason I'm hesitant to call it, you know, time of death is I've, I've basically called time of death for shale multiple times before, and every time I've been wrong. So they, they, you know, they've always found a way to come back and produce more. And I think I'm not the only one to have that kind of humbling experience of being wrong so frequently on U.S. shale kind of tapping out. Now, the big discussion now is around cash flow discipline or kind of a prioritization of investor returns, uh, because you know the un, you know the unspoken thing or you know it's spoken in industry is that massive you know burst of shale production that buried oil markets for half a decade was financed by really cheap capital. And most of it saw no return. So you, you, you know, the numbers vary depending on the sample, but you're looking at upwards of half a trillion dollars of investor money that went up in smoke trying to chase this uh, production, and there was no return. So now investors are saying, you know, I want my return. Not only do I want payback for that, you know, decade of, you know, miserable returns. But, you know, why would you consider pumping or, or, or drilling more into this kind of environment? Just sit back and let the good times roll. That's the biggest factor right now is this question of investor or, or equity market imposed cash flow discipline. But there's also all of these other issues down the supply chain that, you know, supply chains are snarled across every industry. The oil industry is no different. You know, much of the past year, it's been trouble getting pipe. After that, we've seen labor come up as a major issue. Uh, they're running out of sand. They're, you know, there's all of these other issues uh, that are going to hold up production. And I think there are just so many moving parts that it's hard to know exactly where they're going to fall at this stage anyways. Roy, let, let me ask you, um, you, you talked there about um, this return on capital and the fact that uh, there's essentially been free capital. And the, the shale patch has essentially been born and come of age during a time of essentially zero cost of capital. What does the potential for interest rate hikes do to that? Because, um, you know, if people are starting to want decent returns on equity, they're certainly going to start to want decent return on capital. In a world where rates are being pressured to go higher, how much of a potential thorn on the side of expansion of the shale patch is that going to be? I would say at this exact moment, not as much as the overall kind of just pressure never again to, you know, outspend cash flow right. under any circumstance. But 
I would say the, you know, right now it's interesting. I, and I was just in, in, in prep for this uh, podcast. I was just reading, you know, all the different earnings transcripts and stuff and just kind of seeing, get a flavor. And what I've noticed is there's a really interesting barbelling of the industry that's going on. Uh, and by which I mean, you know, you're seeing some growth. You've seen kind of highlighted growth from Exxon and Chevron in the Permian. I think combined, they're going to grow somewhere, you know, just shy of 200,000 between them, uh, 200,000 barrels a day year on year, I should say. And they're basically financing that mostly out of their own balance sheets. You know, they've got, you know, these majors have a lot of access to capital and they're going to deploy it here in strategic areas. They're not going to overproduce, but they're going to grow. The other area that's been seeing growth is the privates. Uh, there's a lot of, P, you know, private equity money here. Uh, they don't have the same kind of qualms and they just want, you know, growth and growth and profit. I think the the biggest area that I'm seeing hesitancy from is what I'd call the major kind of U.S. shale independence. You know, EOG, Pioneer, Continental, Diamondback, et cetera. Those are the firms that I think in many cases were the major drivers of the previous periods of production. Uh, and I think those are, the, those are the firms now that seem like they have the most investor pushback to growth. It seems like they have had uh, they they may be the ones that have uh, felt the brunt of you know limiting of bank capital uh, and access to this to the sector broadly. Um, I think that is the area that uh, I think th- so goes the you know U.S. independence, so goes the shale patch. And I think if we see those producers start growing at kind of 10, 20% a year again, that's when I think it's going to be a real concern for the overall market balance. But most of those kind of players in that independent tier, most of them are kind of, you know, capping their CapEx growth in somewhere in that 5% range, which is, you know, a healthy level. I mean, under no circumstance are we not going to require more U.S. shale production. So it's good that we're going to get some growth. We just don't want so much that it, can, you know, kind of drowns the market and pushes us back into this up and down up and down cycle. Let me um, ask a quick follow-up on something you mentioned earlier, and, and in the context of shale, you know, when we're thinking about incremental sources of supply, back to um, Alberta, and you know, a lot of controversy, of course, with Biden canceling Keystone Pipeline as literally the first uh, executive order that he made um, once he became president. I was just looking up on the Bloomberg here while you were talking that you know I see that Western Canadian Select Differential is come back in pretty strong here in the past few months. It's down to, looks like 12 or $13 a barrel discount to WTI, which is actually pretty, pretty impressive for Canada. What, how is, <laughs> how is the, for the, for the oil coming from Alberta, I should say, um, how, how is the production going? Where is the oil going now that Keystone you know, has been put on hold? Is it coming into the U.S. via rail? Is it being exported? Talk to us about the dynamics in, in a perhaps uh, a less covered area of the North American oil market, which is what's going on in the oil sands. Yeah, I mean, and that's actually probably my my biggest specialty and area I like to nerd out is is Canadian liquids. But basically, so you know, again, for listeners that aren't aware of the broader history, um, Canada saw some of the biggest investment kind of pylons of that previous mega project boom period. And the oil sands were the biggest target of that, both for, you know, the mega, you know, oil sands mines that you see on all of the posters, but also more of the newer trajectory of, of production, which is in situ or in place. And you basically inject steam deep into the earth and you basically do the same kind of process in the oil sands, but you extract it underground rather than surface mining. So you had massive production growth there, you know, exceeding 2 million barrels a day from, I think, 2008 to 2014 or, or whatever the range was. But the challenge is, is that all of those projects, you know, investment started at the same time as investment and in plans for all these pipelines. And the pipelines really didn't keep up because, you know, it started with Keystone XL. I think Keystone XL was one of the first, at least in the modern era of, you know, the famous environmental opposition kind of, um, you know, targets. Keystone XL, it even has a name that kind of sounds like, you know, it's very easy to rally around. And, and the focus became blocking these pipelines because that would, you know, you know, hashtag keep it in the ground. What that did effectively was, you know, at the big, you know, when we were talking earlier about what's in the oil price, just for, you know, the perspective, a West, the Western Canadian Select Benchmark, which is Canada's main export blend, is basically a, it's a diluted barrel of bitumen. Uh, so it's a very, very heavy barrel of oil uh, that's high in sulfur. So it's heavy sour. So it's always going to receive some kind of discount relative to WTI, West Texas, West Texas Intermediate, which is a light sweet crude. Now that 
that what I call the quality differential ranges kind of between five and ten dollars a barrel, given refining trends and production from equivalent streams like uh, Mexican Maya crude or some of the the Venezuelan exports. But in 2018, which is when I was kind of in my position uh, at Scotia, that blew out uh, at the end of 2018 to something like $45 a barrel differential between WCS and WTI, which at the time I did work that kind of put the economic cost to Canada somewhere you know, north of $20 billion in terms of lost uh, economic potential cost. So you know, the reason is, is that you know, all of these barrels were produced in Alberta, but they don't get consumed there and they have to get to where they're going. Um, and the main way of doing that without a pipeline was rail. So oil by rail was this big you know, industry that grew very quickly during this period um, to try and rail those barrels to where they were going. And it worked pretty well, but it didn't keep up fast enough. And that's why those differentials kept growing. Now, fast forward, and we've had both, a, we had a slowdown in production growth in the oil sands, both generally because of a slowdown in investment, but also because of COVID. Combine that with the fact that you had de-bottlenecking efforts along uh, the major pipeline network out of Canada, which is the Enbridge mainline, which is a system of multiple different pipes. Um, at the same time, you had part of that, the Line 3 expansion come on, and now we're, we're waiting for the Trans Mountain expansion project to come on, which is a, an expansion of an existing line to the West Coast. But all that together, all that to say, we went from being very underpiped to now more or less unless something, you know, tragic goes wrong with one of the existing pipelines, you know, uh, and you did an excellent piece on this in, in line five as a great example of what could go wrong. But in the steady state where we're at right now, we actually have enough pipeline capacity. So we're not needing to price an oil by rail. So oil by rail is actually back down, you know, substantially from where it had reached because the difference in price, it just isn't big enough to pay for that transport, uh, you know, mechanism anymore. Uh, so in terms of Canadian producers, it's actually a pretty great time because not only do you have really narrow differentials, you have production reaching kind of all time highs while the U.S. is still, you know, materially down from its pre-COVID peak. At the same time, because of the outperformance of the U.S. dollar and because of the relative, you know, the lessening of the investment in new oil sands and the, you know, the flood of FDI that came with that, the Canadian dollar is much lower now than it was back in 2014. So back, above, you know, at $100 crude, we would have expected CAD to be at, you know, above 90 cents to the US dollar. Now it's under 80. So that goes back to, it's great for Canadian producers because, you know, you're producing a barrel of crude that you're selling in US dollars, but then you're earning in Canadian dollars. So that's really, really great for Canadian upstream oil producers and a reason they're more or less kind of printing money right now. But on the flip side, it's really bad for Canadian consumers because we're also seeing all-time high gasoline prices in Canada right now, which is, you know, uh, I, I talk to a lot of media and that's kind of, you know, all, you know, the pump price is always kind of front of mind. So not only do you have high prices of crude, you have, you know, high prices of gasoline, you have high prices in Canadian dollars, and then you have, you know, the added tax burden that's come in in those intervening years that more or less people didn't notice things like, you know, additional provincial taxes, you know, additional carbon taxes that I think most people didn't notice because the price of oil was falling. So it kind of blunted that. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, I'm now paying, you know, a dollar 65 a liter for gasoline, uh, which, you know, that, that, that was an all-time high for Canada. Roy, let's continue on this this pipeline discussion because obviously across the pond in Europe, there are all kinds of forces at play and many of them are currently centering around the Nord Stream 2 face-off, let's call it, between Europe and the Russians. Can you give us some background to Nord Stream 2 and, and kind of explain just how important it actually is to Europe? I mean, it's become a political battleground as a lot of these um, oil considerations have become. But just help us understand its importance. It's important to understand about the European gas balance broadly is just how dependent it is on Russian exports. And that's become very acutely kind of, you know, a point of, of awareness right, right now with, right. with the energy crisis. But just again, to, to rewind a little bit and to put the crisis we're seeing in Europe into perspective, a lot of it was the chickens coming home to roost, not, not to speak ill of, uh, of, of, your, of, your, of your kin, Doomberg, but People always said it was ESG, and I think that does play into it somewhat. But I would say more than that, even it's a it's a nimbyism that Europe doesn't want to build out domestic natural gas production. They have some in the North Sea, uh, you know, Norway and the UK. There, there are some elsewhere, uh, like the Netherlands. But 
you know, generally there hasn't been a growth in natural gas production because as a continent, Europe really hasn't embraced fracking. You know, that was the initial pre, you know, the prelim for how this kind of crisis even came along was, you know, it could only happen if you didn't have ample gas. And what we ran into a situation whereby, you know, you had a bunch of weather patterns globally that put pressure on global gas uh, supplies. So inventories were already pretty low. And then coming out of COVID, one of the things that happened with COVID was that everyone in 2020 delayed maintenance on their facilities. People think, oh, why don't, you know, it's actually a good time for maintenance, but you actually put more people in your facility when you're when you're kind of fixing it than when you're just normally running it. And that was the big worry. They didn't want people traveling. They didn't want people in close proximity. So a lot of the facilities that were meant to be kind of maintained or, or shut down temporarily in 2020, only did so in 2021, just as all of this kind of supply crisis was taking hold. The debate around things like Nord Stream 2 are that, you know, obviously right now, Europe needs more Russian gas. And I think that's part of the reason why everything that's happening in Ukraine is so high mind because it's it's happening all in the backdrop of this energy crisis. And I feel like it's making the geopolitics of energy particularly kind of, you know, front of front of mind again. But the, you know, the argument against it is that by you know, allowing the pipeline to be built, you're just further entrenching dependence on this type of supply. Whereas if you don't have it, then you, you're forced by you know, the economics to find alternatives. But I, you know, I'm not a, I'm, my specialty isn't kind of Eastern European pipeline politics, but as a general backdrop, that's how I kind of see the crisis that's been brewing there. Yeah, it's funny, you're, you're probably the only person on FinTwit who hasn't become an expert on uh, Eastern European <laughs> pipeline politics. But let, let me just, um, uh, I know Dumi's got another question, but let me just have one quick follow-up on that because obviously there is there, there is this tug-of-war over Nord Stream and it's being used as a as a as alternatively a bargaining chip and a hammer by by both sides. You know, you've got Putin obviously is in control of the taps. We had Biden threatening Putin with, you know, kiss goodbye to Nord Stream 2 if if you go into Ukraine. Where does the power really lie in this? Because my take, and, and I'm happy to be proven wrong, is that the guy who has the gas has the power because um ultimately he can send that he can send that eastwards as opposed to westwards one would imagine but i may be being incredibly naive with that so just kind of handicap it if you can as to who holds the the better hand when it comes to Nord Stream 2 yeah and i think it's a it's a really good question actually because i think you know it, it, we're just talking about canada and then europe and pipelines right i think it's actually a great example of how it is a two-sided coin that there is both security of supply, but also security of demand. That in the Canadian example, it's actually a lack of pipelines that causes the problem. So we were the ones, you know, in this in this example, with the gas or with the crude, but we couldn't send it anywhere. So we were actually kind of screwed in that moment. In the example of Russia, that dependence is built up. It's much more structural. So I think as of right now, the balance of power, you know, you know, resides on that particular topic in Moscow. But if there was a long-term kind of, you know, five to 10-year kind of concerted effort to diversify away from that dependence, well, all of a sudden, both, you know, Putin has lost his main bargaining chip there and you've lost, you know, that reliable, high-value export market. So it's it's really, uh, that's why this is so complicated, I think, from Russia's perspective as well, is they don't want to risk the long-term damage of not being seen as a, um, a reliable uh, a secure provider of these fuels, because in the long term, that means that you diversify away. So there's always, you know, everything in, in moderation, right? Yes. I, my question sort of relates to that. And um, it, it comes down to the fact that what we've observed in response to the natural gas crisis in Europe that's spilled over to Asia is this flotilla of LNG carriers coming from essentially the U.S. shale patch over to Europe to save the day. And I wonder whether, um, back to sort of an earlier question, the ability of the shale patch to keep performing, uh, both in oil and in associated gas and, of course, dedicated natural gas fields, given the constraints around certain pipeline projects being delayed, which we've written about, mm-hmm. um, I wonder sort of what your thoughts are on that. And I know within Canada as well, there's been some you know, LNG export terminals that have been delayed and pipeline projects that have been delayed all in the sort of similar keep it in the ground type environmental movement. Yeah, exactly. And I think that so you're you're absolutely right. The, you know, US energy investment and capacity growth over the past decade has made it 
you know, it, it, it's a sea change in terms of how it can approach an energy crisis like this, because while it, it can't, you know, with a flip of a switch, direct private actors to kind of fill this gap and kind of go stop Putin, they, you know, the prices kind of do that for them. And, you know, you've seen reductions in Russian pipe gas imports, you know, above and beyond what was even, you know, throttled by Gazprom at certain points because of that huge kind of high price. So, you know, all of that U.S. Uh, LNG exports was also able to do that because a lot, the other thing that's happened in the LNG market is, it's starting to resemble more like the crude oil market. You know, rewind 40 years and crude oil was very similar to LNG five, 10 years ago, which is, you know, long-term contracts, very inflexible. You know, you basically, you know, you, you had your offtake agreements for 25 years. They were all kind of, you know, prepaid, pre-negotiated, et cetera. There wasn't a ton of flexibility. So even if there was a crisis, it's not like you could just divert that cargo because someone else had already kind of committed for it. What you're seeing now with more and more capacity coming online is you're seeing the development of spot markets, which allows actually for some of this LNG switching kind of destination-wise to happen, which is really interesting uh, and also makes the market, you know, it, it's the classic, you know, the market solves. This is an instance where a spot market development actually does help the market solve the gap of European kind of supply availability because of it, its ability to kind of incentivize um, US LNG. To your question, I think your, your, your correct point about how North America to a lesser extent, but OECD broadly has had this issue with, you know, sanctioning and encouraging or even allowing the production and capacity buildup of these traditional hydrocarbons. Because, you know, I think a lot of the worry is in, you know, well, it's, you know, there's peak demand or, you know, we don't want the emissions here or whatever. But at the end of the day, I'm a firm believer that the market can only support so much supply. I'd rather the supply be located in Canada and the United States than, you know, Russia and Qatar. Uh, and I think that is my general politics. Um, I, they used to call me the pipeline progressive. And that was, you know, this idea that I think that Canada and the United States uh, should be able to leverage that massive hydrocarbon resource base both as kind of good stewards of those resources, but also as, as an amplification of their kind of stature on the global stage. It would be much harder to kind of talk from a point of strength on an energy crisis if you yourself are not a major energy producer. And the efforts to block pipelines in many jurisdictions, um, Canada, obviously, we have the LNG Canada facility, and there's been lots of protests around the, the coastal gas link pipeline that matches that facility in British Columbia on the coast up to, um, you know, the, the large gas fields in the northeast of uh, BC and northwest of Alberta. Similarly, and, and as you've written about Doomberg, you know, there's massive, you know, consistent and ongoing opposition to any type of these capital expenditures or investments in, you know, fixed assets like pipelines uh, through the northeast. Uh, that's been true of, you know, high, you know, high voltage power lines in. It's been true of pipeline capacity out. That's true of really the entire, you know, midstream sector. So I do think that what you're seeing is most of the new and kind of growth of the LNG industry is coming in that kind of Gulf Coast area, which is much more amenable to these types of projects being built. And you know, the, the pipelines are just kind of a, a given at that stage for, you know, building a pipeline in Texas really isn't that hard. Rory, you, you wrote recently about this um, this kind of divergence between bullish opinions on the price going forward in the street and, and yet bearish kind of forecast. Perhaps you could flesh that out a little bit. This is, I think this is, was this your, have you published since then? Was this your most recent piece? This was that, was most my recent. Mo that was my yeah. last piece. I, call, I called it uh, bullish on the streets, bearish in the forecast, forecast sheets. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so perhaps you could just kind of flesh that out for people. Because I, I think that this is, again, another one of those divergences that is, is tricky for people to understand who aren't deep up to their necks in oil like you are. Yeah. And I mean, there's, you know, I should say, so what I called the, in, in my piece, I called there, there was an agency consensus outlook. And that was basically, there's three major organizations that put out public facing forecasts of oil supply and demand balances globally. You've got in the United States, you've got the energy, the Department of Energy has the Energy Information Administration, the EIA. Uh, in, in the OECD in Paris, you've got uh, the International Energy Agency or the IEA, and then you've got 
OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. All three of those organizations put out a monthly report that catalogs and tabulates uh, all supply and demand across major producers, major consuming regions. And they also put forward a forecast, typically a year to a year and a half uh, ahead, about how they think that those uh, balances are going to you know, evolve over the coming you know, months and years. What I think right now is that We've gone through a period, again, at, you know, remember to 2020, we had all-time high supply surpluses. And then we went through 2021, which was extreme, extreme undersupplied markets. Inventories drew globally, visibly at the OECD at more than a million barrels a day, all the way through 2021, uh, which is, you know, just wild, honestly. That's like really, really fast inventory drawdowns, uh, record, record pacing historically. Um, but looking forward, uh, you kind of start peeling apart all of the assumptions in these forecasts. And what I was trying to find were the five elements of those forecasts that were more or less common between all three agencies. And on those, the biggest one was this outlook for U.S. shale. And we've talked about how you, know, you can be bullish or bearish on U.S. shale. Right now, those agencies see about 1 to 1.2 million barrels a day of growth out of the U.S. shale patch. Now, on one hand, you know, people, people could say that's a really bullish outlook on shale. Because I think right now, versus the assumption, I think, now and even a couple months ago, that was a very, very bullish forecast. But also recall, though, that, you know, a million barrels a day of growth at nearly $100 crude, you would have seen like a crazy bear even three years ago that that would have been the only supply response from U.S. shale. So I think it's also important to think about in that context. But, you know, this is, you know, if it's not for that U.S. shale growth, the market isn't oversupplied. The market is in balance to deficit. And then you look at the other assumptions that they make. You know, you assume that, uh, you know, OPEC plus mostly returns its uh, promised crude. Not all of it. I think you're still about a million barrels a day short of the initial 9.7 million barrel a day cut, but most of it's returned. Uh, you also assume nearly a million barrels a day of growth from non-OPEC plus production outside of the U.S. And that's, again, this kind of ephemeral other that we're talking about. This is where I go back to the, you know, that's mainly Latin America and Brazil and Guyana and some assumptions about Canadian growth. Uh, but those are like the main things that kind of all together make up this outlook. Oh, the, the other the other two, uh, those were three of five. The other two were no change on sanctions disposition. So no change in Iran or Venezuelan right, sanctions. Right. Uh, and then finally, basically very strong demand growth. Although not gangbusters, right? I think it's it's a return to pre-pandemic levels uh, and an exceeding of those levels, but not a return to pre-pandemic trend, which I think, you know, if you return to the trend, you'd still see, you know, upside of a couple million barrels a day more. But all those together, I think you get mildly oversupplied markets. Now, any of these, those things could go wrong. Brazilian pre-salt has chronically kind of uh, fallen short of expectations in the past. Uh, and I, But I think all of those, the biggest pivot point is U.S. shale, which is why I think, you know, we focus so much on it in this call. Uh, but I think why everyone right now is talking about their U.S. shale view, because one, there's a lot of data. So there's a lot of things to debate. Um, but two, the impact is just so monumental. I, you know, I, I, it's hard to stress how much of the entire ballgame U.S. shale outlook is. Rory, uh, one last question for me before we, we toss over to Grant to wrap us up. But it's really been a fantastic discussion, and, and I knew that you would um, knock it out of the park. I'd really appreciate you coming on. You know, for our listeners, you know, you, you are obviously a, a, an oil nerd, as you said, and, and <laughs> love to geek it up. When you wake up in the morning, what are the, the first four or five things you look at as you're brewing your coffee and you want to get started on the day? Maybe give some insight into sort of sources and methods that Rory yeah. uses um, to get a sense of where the market is and where, where it's going and the things that really, you know, the first four or five metrics you look at every morning? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, you know, the first thing I look at every morning is the price of crude, uh, just in, you know, straight level. Uh, whether it's WTI or Brent honestly depends what's going on in the market, but usually WTI. And I, and I also look at it in terms of how it's performing versus, you know, the S&P 500 and copper to see if it's something, if this is broad risk off uh, kind of behavior or if there's something more oil specific. And that's my, usually my very early indication before I've even opened Twitter, you know, that like, oh, there's something that's gone on. You should probably check on it. Or it's pretty sleepy. Nothing's really pushing markets around. So that's, you know, number one. The other thing I, I track quite frequently is the differential between WTI and WCS, Western Canadian Select, just because it's such a it's such an important factor for 
Canadian liquids, which is kind of my, my favorite area, and to the overall Canadian economy. And then the other thing I really look at for oil specifically is what we'll call the, the term spread or the calendar spread. And that's the difference between uh, basically the shape or how steep the curve is. And again, just to go back for reference, the bigger a premium you're seeing on the prompt month today, the more backwardation you're experiencing in the market versus, let's say, 12 months down the line, that is a sign of effectively how tight the forward curve is telling you the market is. If it's really backwarded, it's really tight, it's trying to incentivize all these uh, these barrels to flow out. If you start dipping back down towards, you know, contango or a prompt discount to forward cargoes, that is where I think that's the first sign that something's gone wrong. You know, you, you, you market somewhere in the major hubs are oversupplied for 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 one reason or another. And I think that is what will normally be your first major signal that you could see prices about to take a dive. And then the final thing I would I would check on kind of in this context is the CFTC uh, has the Commitment of Traders Report, which I'm sure many of the list, many listeners are are aware of. But what it does is it gives major kind of buckets of participants and their and their positioning for major futures contracts. So what I like to watch is a thing called the managed money positions across the major uh, crude contracts. And that gives you a net figure, kind of longs and shorts. And historically, I think a lot of people said, look at that as your kind of, that's where the smart money is going. Follow the smart money. And that's it was basically a momentum trade. But I tend to think of it from a slightly different perspective. And again, I'm not a trader. I'm, I'm more of just a, I, I, I'm a, a former bank economist. But I look at it in terms of a, a contra indicator that if the net position of that kind of group is really, really high, it means all else equal, you're likely to see, it's likely to become a headwind. You're likely to see less additions there. And you're, again, all else equal, you're going to see sales. So I typically I typically start to get worried when you see, you know, calendar spreads start to deteriorate and you see that net speculative positioning reaching too high a share. Because that's just, you know, then basically you're more or less hoping on a prayer that crude is not going to drop uh, because there's a lot of people that could sell. And I think those... Overall, that's kind of my quick check in the morning to say, like, here's what's going on and here are the things that we should be focusing on today. Rory, the whole point of Doomberg and I putting this podcast together was trying to create a platform where we could help people find guys like you in spaces that you know, they perhaps think they understand, but there's a really there's such a depth of knowledge required in the oil space. And so to have you come on, uh, you've set an incredibly high bar for everybody that, that's going to come <laughs> on follow you, which is which is great because hopefully they're all going to up their game to try and to, to try and get ahead of you. But look, I, I can't thank you enough for taking this time. We both really really appreciate you doing it. But perhaps before we go, and, and the perfect way to sign off is is to let everybody who's listened to you and wants to find out more about what you do and find out how to follow you, give them all the venues they can do that with. Because um, as I say, for, for both Doomberg and I, you're, you're an invaluable resource. Thank you so much. I mean, uh, I'm mostly sharing all of my oil nerddom on Twitter at uh, at Rory underscore Johnston. And then my, my again, my substack is commoditycontext.substack.com. Uh, and it's at this stage entirely free. We will see at the future what the monetization options look like. But for now, I'm just looking for people to give me feedback on this research and hopefully educate the market at a particularly consequential time for, for energy. Well, uh, fantastic. And again, um, on behalf of us both, thank you so much for this. It's been uh, it's been really eye-opening and um, hopefully we'll have you back again to discuss developments as this crazy picture continues to play out. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Grant. And thank you so much, Doomberg, for bringing me on. Well, Doomy, I have to say, this plan to introduce people to to great minds that perhaps they aren't familiar with has, is off to a flying start after that conversation. Absolutely. Rory is um, really criminally underfollowed, I think, on Twitter and, uh, and also on Substack. And really great guy, as you heard, and, and phenomenal knowledge base. And, and really just sitting in the catbird seat of what I think are some of the most important economic indicators that investors today should be keeping a close eye on, namely energy and um, oil and gas in particular. And, and really a phenomenal start. And I'm really proud to, proud to put it out. It's going to be a great show. Yeah, no, it's um, it, it is it's such a complicated um, space, and you know, as I said in, in I think my first question, this the fact that it's all distilled down to a number 
um, I think doesn't do justice to the complexity. So, so to have a resource like Rory for people to listen to who can help them actually understand that it's not just a number. There are so many different inputs and kind of tectonic plates that shift that, that create that number that if you don't really understand those, you, you're on hiding to nothing if you want to mess around in the oil patch. Yeah, and as you're one of the former guests on your podcast, Simon Hunt mentioned, you know, there's a difference between the reporting markets and the and the real markets and, and you know, somebody with the knowledge that, that Rory has is, is actually absolutely invaluable. And so it's really a great privilege to, to give him this exposure to your subscribers and hopefully they benefited from it. Absolutely. Hard to see how they couldn't. Well, um, look, that's all from us for this episode. You've already got the details of how to follow Rory, but one more time. It's Rory underscore Johnston. That's Johnston without an E at the end for the Scots listening out there. And you'll find his uh, fantastic work at commoditycontext.substack.com. In the meantime, if you're not following me already, you can do that quite easily. You'll find me on Twitter at TTMYGH. And you can follow Doomberg at DoombergT as well as Doomberg.substack.com. Follow the chicken. All right, mate. I'll see you again soon. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.